what I found was if I asked the right questions, that wall never appeared. Mm. Asking the right questions opened people's minds to a different perspective. That to me was a road to success that I had limited experience with initially. Hi, I'm Matt McKee, and welcome to Cherry Bomb, the podcast, a series of conversations with people about food, art, and sustainability. Today, I'm speaking here in the studio in Boston with James Carmody, recent vice president and general manager at Seaport Hotel Boston, named one of the greenest hotels in North America. This episode is sponsored by Guacamole, a part of my Sweet Blast series of photos. I created the series with the mission to start conversations in the room about the bigger topics of food, art, and sustainability. This podcast is the companion piece to that project where I get to share with you some of the conversations that Sweet Blast has inspired. You can browse and purchase images in the Sweet Blast collection at theartofmattmckee.com. Please share this episode on your Facebook, Twitter, and all your social media so your friends can listen and join in the conversation. Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Pleasure to be here. Wanted to find out from you how you got started in the hospitality industry. As a young man, I wanted to be financially independent as soon as I possibly could. So good, good. I went to work at uh, 14 years of age at the Howard Johnson's and Marcy Boulevard. It's no longer in existence. And I was cooking there for a number of years, then went on to Bickford's Pancake House, and I became a manager at age 18. Oh, my gosh. And I was on my way. It was interesting. I was cooking and managing back and forth uh, and attending school at night. And my then-girlfriend, later my wife, uh, sent away to get a brochure from the Madeline Common School of Gourmet Cooking. Oh, wow. That's the first time I actually really thought about, well, maybe cooking could be my career. <laughs> I loved it. I enjoyed yeah. it. And I was good at it. Sent away to the Mass Restaurant Association. And they said, if you really want to be a, a chef, go to the CIA in High Park, New York. So That's, that's the Culinary Institute Culinary of Institute of America. Yeah. As I was finishing my two-year stint there... One of the last courses, you had to develop a restaurant, uh, the floor plan, the menu, a one-year projection of sales and expenses. It was a pretty oh comprehensive gosh. project, mm. and you had three weeks to do it. <laughs> At the end of that, my instructor came to me, and he said, what are you doing after you graduate from here? I said, I'm going to find somebody with a lot of money. I'll provide the sweat <laughs> equity, and we'll become restaurant partners. And he said, you should go to Cornell. Okay. And that was way beyond anything I had ever conceived of. And mm -hmm. Next thing I knew, I was at Cornell as a married student. My wife and I got married between the CIA and Cornell. My first job out of Cornell was at the Ritz-Carlton in Chicago. That was a Four Seasons Hotel. Isidore Sharp, who was then president and CEO of Four Seasons, came to Cornell and made a presentation. And instantly, I said, that's where I want to go to work. He made such a compelling presentation of quality, of exquisite nature of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel itself. So I immediately made that my mission. I was not classified as a senior because I expedited my departure at, mm -hmm. at Cornell. I took a lot of courses in a short period of time. So I was not qualified to sign up for an interview with Four Seasons. Mm -hmm. But they did allow me to go to the reception before the night of the interviews. So I did a little research, found out who was going to be there. I made envelopes, three copies of my resume, John Sharp, Dennis Mills, Susan Brown. <laughs> I went to the reception. I sought out Susan Brown, met her, talked to her. She said, why don't you just send me a resume? And I pulled out my envelope with her name, handed it to her, and she set it aside, and I moved on. I see Dennis Mills. I go over to Dennis. Same thing, exact same result. Thank you very much for your resume. I'll be back in touch with you. So then I see John Sharp. He's surrounded by a few people. He's a popular guy. He was the head man at the time. Okay. I do the same with John. He opens it immediately. Hmm. 
He looks at it and he said, you have a very interesting resume. Every single position, you've increased your responsibility all along the way. But you've also maintained or improved the quality every single step. He said, my interviews tomorrow morning start at 8 o'clock. Can you be at my office at 7.30? Oh, my God. And at 7.45, I had a job. <laughs> oh, my God. It was great. It was great. <laughs> Serendipity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, serendipity and i guess there's the old adage that my father always used to say is not who you know it's who knows you yes and getting in front of them is half the battle right there absolutely that's fantastic it was great back at the cia i came home one weekend and i said uh, i wanted to make dessert that evening Mm -hmm. my mother said well what are you going to to prepare and i said well it's going to be a secret so i (laughs) snuck away into the pantry with my ingredients and all of a sudden she called out she said you're making a souffle yes i am what do you know about soufflés (laughs) And she said, my favorite is prune souffle. And I said, what do you know about prune souffle? And she came clean. She was a professional chef. Oh, my gosh. I was 26 years old. I did not have a clue. (laughs) I knew how well we ate. She was a fabulous cook, but I didn't know she was a professional cook in private homes. Oh, my gosh. I said, Mom, I've been at the CIA now for a whole year, and you never said anything about this culinary connection. Uh, I guess it was in my genes and in my DNA. And she said, well, I always thought you were going to be making deals, doing deals on the golf course. (laughs) If you look in the dictionary under chef, it says domestic help. I wanted my children to be better than domestic help. Oh, wow. So now I'm doing the domestic chores of cooking, (laughs) but I'm also playing golf and doing deals on the golf course. So I I satisfied both. There you go. Gosh, that's cool. After working in Chicago... Yes. Chicago is a terrific experience. I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, John Sharp, when he said quality was important, and I really was captivated by Izzy Sharp's discussion on quality, the Ritz-Carlton was such a bastion of quality. You were totally immersed in quality, everything about it. The guest room doors probably weighed 300 pounds. Mm. When you closed that door, you couldn't hear anything anywhere. You were in total isolation. The food quality, the wine, they had an extensive wine list. I was made the assistant food and beverage director within six months of graduating from Cornell. Wow. So that was pretty fast-tracked. Yeah. And it was just being in the right place at the right time. I had an interest and a fascination with wine. So I started looking at their wine cellar, which was huge. It was over a million dollars. But it was interesting. The Ritz in Chicago was initially opened by the Ritz-Carlton Company out of Boston. They transferred some of their wines from the Boston cellar to the Chicago cellar. And they kept the original prices. So when I looked at the list, there were wines on the list selling at prices below retail. Oh, wow. So I thought, well, there's an opportunity. (laughs) So I did some research. I repriced all the wines, added probably about $500,000 to the wine cellar inventory value by raising the prices because wine had appreciated in quite a bit of time. And these were wines from 1961, 63, 66. And then I started expanding the wine cellar. In one area, I had this terrific opportunity. There was a company called Direct Wine Importing, and I had developed a fascination with vintage port. And they were bringing in a container from London. And I jumped on that, and I bought $40,000 worth of vintage port. Well, this was back in 1981, and the general manager and the controller thought I was absolutely crazy and went ballistic when they saw the invoice come in. And then I explained to them, told them what the ROI was going to be, and within two years, it was all done. I had achieved better than the ROI I had planned. So they let me experiment more, and I had such an opportunity. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that was different is I brought a blue-collar work ethic Mm -hmm. to luxury. It's not that that made me unique, but it was less common. Yeah. I think they admired how hard I worked. 
but also I was willing to take risks, prudent risks. Prudent, uh, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. And they were fun, and they were fun to make them come true. But then you transitioned out yes. of hospitality for a little while. Not right away. I, I went down to Dallas. I opened a huge hotel, and then from there went to Atlanta, where there was an old star that was lost its luster, and they were going to restore it. They never did. I left. I went back to Four Seasons, and then came to open the Boston Harbor Hotel. Okay. which was a high point for me in my career, returning to Boston and opening that was such a pleasure and a, such a distinct property. Such a landmark for Boston. Absolutely. Uh, everyone knows that one. Then one day I got a phone call from an old friend, both Cornell and Four Seasons. John Holliver called me and he said, Jim, how would you like to work in a hospital? I said, why would I want to do that? No, thank you. I don't want any part Not of it. Not a lot of wine there either. No, no exactly. <laughs> so that started an eight-month interview process. I joined Tufts Medical Center as Vice President of General Services. Mm-hmm. I had to learn an entirely new vocabulary, tiny new language. Very exciting time. For somebody who was comfortable with change and implementing change, it was a target-rich environment. Technology was changing so rapidly that the practitioners couldn't change their practice and the delivery of care to keep pace with the change in technology. What year was this? This was in 1993. Okay. To illustrate, in August of 1993, a cardiac catheterization was an inpatient procedure, and the hospital got paid $5,000. In September, it was an outpatient procedure. The hospital got paid $1,500. And if you kept the patient overnight without some really compelling rationale, the insurer wouldn't pay you anything because they said, you're making my patient susceptible to nosocomial or hospital-acquired infections. Oh, my God. So the practitioners didn't even know this. That information hadn't been disseminated. Mm. They hadn't changed what they were doing. And the hospital was bleeding millions, as was all hospitals. So it was very interesting to do the different things and make all the changes. Mm-hmm. So I was watching food being produced. Mm-hmm. They were batch processing food. Cheese omelets would be made about 5 o'clock in the morning, put on a plate and stuck in a hot box. Oof. Yeah, that patient might not get that cheese omelet about 9 o'clock in the morning. Oof. You imagine what that texture was like. Oh, you know, very, yeah, no, how delicious. No, thank you. But also, when you're arriving as a patient, say you arrive Monday afternoon, they're telling you, okay, you have to now pick what you want for breakfast, lunch, and dinner over the next three days. Who knows that? And, and, and when am I going to eat? And that sort of thing. So I kept watching this. And what I found was a lot of the food never was eaten by the patient. It was produced. It was sent up. But the patient wasn't there because they're down getting an angiogram or they're down getting at the heart station or they're someplace else. Mm-hmm. Technology was increasing the pace of activity with the patient. So the patient wasn't sitting in the bed for hours. Yeah. And I also knew that if you're not feeling well, you may not feel like eating. And there may be a moment where all of a sudden you have an appetite. Get the food to that patient right then when they're hungry. Yeah. And as a patient, you can't control the care that you're getting. You just assume you're getting the best of medical care. But you can rely on something about food and have some control of food. Food is comfort. And it's comfort, absolutely. And it's very critical in terms of your healing process. I think that got lost somewhere. And I got to tell you, I was challenged by a woman we all know very well. Julia Child was a patient in a, in a hospital, and she called me up one day. And she said, Jim, I was in this hospital, and uh, the food was awful, was dreadful. She said, why is it so terrible? She yeah. said, you've got to fix it. 
I kept watching and I said, you know, even though this is a 420-bed hospital, it's like a small boutique hotel that's serving about 100 meals a day because a lot of people weren't eating regular food. Yeah. And I thought, we could do room service. So I called an old friend of mine, Jean-Yves, who used to be the executive chef at the Ritz-Carlton in Boston. Mm-hmm. Jean-Yves had his own kitchen design firm. I said, I want to design a kitchen in the middle of the clinical environment, so I'm only five minutes away from any bed, and I want to provide food service on demand. There was one hospital... Swedish hospital in Seattle that was doing it. And now I believe that's a standard in healthcare, mm. that you can order food a la minute and have it delivered. One thing I did insist on, that hospital's in the middle of Chinatown. I said, we will have a walk. And we did stir fry. <laughs> and stir fry is a number one seller. The greens are fresh, crisp. Yeah. They look bright. The vegetables are all terrific. You eat with your eyes and yeah. your nose. It's about 80% of the orders come right out of the walk. Oh my gosh, yeah. okay thinking when you were talking about learning a brand new language at the same time you're not all you're doing is translating what you did in the hospitality world and bring it to guest services in the hospital that absolutely true but there was another part i kind of glanced over and that was my job enrichment job enlargement opportunity i ended up assuming the responsibility of five other vice presidents because the hospital industry was going through such yes. a transformation yeah. i had to learn all sorts of medical terminology I ended up with clinical labs, radiology, pharmacy. I was also involved in an awful lot of change management teams. What does that mean? Uh, Well, for instance, one of the orthopedic surgeons came to me and he said, Jim, all my colleagues around the city can do three knees in a day in the OR with no overtime. Hmm. He said, I only get two done and I have six to eight hours worth of overtime. You got to fix this. And so I assembled a team. Within two months, we were doing three knees without any overtime. It was more of alignment of processes and making sure everybody knew what the end goal was and that they were geared to achieving that objective. Prior to that, it was kind of more of a silo orientation. Another incident was we had a lot of late discharges of patients, which are difficult for the patients. Sometimes they ended up next to day length of stay. And the reason was that we weren't getting the test results back. Well, they're drawing the blood at 7 o'clock in the morning, but they're not getting the results back to 3 or 4 o'clock. What happened was that there were two different types of test tubes. The clinical labs were using the least expensive test tube that took the longest time for the auger set and the actual test results to be delivered. And it was a difference of pennies per test tube. And I said, okay, you're saving pennies in the lab and you're costing thousands of dollars over here on the other side. Let's rework this. By the time we finished, it took about six weeks. Every single test result was in the hands of the physician by nine o'clock in the morning and we never had a discharge past noon. Wow. So you take the top view down to look at everything that's going on and how it all meshes together as opposed to working in the people drawing the blood, the people testing, they're working in the labs. They're, They're not looking down at the whole picture. Uh, Correct. They weren't looking at it as a seamless process from the time the guest enters. In one case, in the OR, one of the first things I found out was we were telling the patient to show up at 7 o'clock. The door was locked until 730. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was simple. So frustration immediately for the guest, the patient coming in. That was the other thing to think about was the patient as a guest. Oh. When I came, they challenged me with that. How can you create a hospitality environment? Because they were more focused on clinical results. Yeah. But the hospitality mattered too. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. if you don't feel like you're being treated fairly, or if you're not able to get in the door when you were told to be there, yeah. <laughs> Minor problem. Minor yeah. problem. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So how much of the changes that you were able to see and make in the hospital came out of your training at either the CIA or Boston Harbor Hotel? 
There were some, absolutely, but the culinary focus was actually pretty small. Well, first of all, to identify what was so wrong mm. about the current system when everybody said there's no other way to do it. And I said, there's a million other ways, <laughs> and this is the worst. What was really important was learning how to be a little bit more persuasive, inclusive, doing a lot of fact-finding before I launched, developing programs and events when I was at the Boston Harbor Hotel Working collaboratively with people from outside of my organization, I learned skills of collaboration. I would look at an opportunity and say, well, I can see how they're doing it now. Are there other ways? Mm -hmm. Go all the way back to the Ritz-Carlton. In 1981, there was a severe recession in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. It was interesting. A lot of the hotels dropped their rates precipitously. And John Sharp, who I mentioned earlier, said, we're not going to do that. We're going to drop the rates a little bit, but we're going to hold our rate because we want to maintain our quality. He said, but you do have to reduce expenses, and I don't want a guest to see it. I want the expenses reduced by 30%, and I don't want the wow. guests to know it. Well, it was very interesting because there was a period of time where there were five or six hotels struggling with RevPAR, it was called Revenue Per Available Room, and they were within a 10 or $20 of each other. Mm-hmm. When John Sharp issued the challenge to reduce the expenses, I said, I don't think I can do this, so I thought I'd better update the resume. Mm-hmm. But we ate the elephant one bite at a time, and we achieved his objective. The guests never saw any perception of a decrease in quality. As a matter of fact, I think the quality improved. We just did things differently, more efficiently, took a more creative approach. But when we came out of the recession, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel catapulted to the top of the RevPAR pipeline, and nobody was even close. Nobody was within $50, which was probably about a 40% spread. One of those hotels never regained its stature because they had done things like eliminate the doorman, kind of like what we had to do with this pandemic. Yeah. Revenues have never been decimated like they were in this pandemic. You know, at my hotel, there were some nights I had... 14 people working. Oh, my gosh. Wow. The ability to improvise, I feel I've kind of mastered that. Okay. That was so valuable for me in healthcare, but I've always been a good listener. The collaborative process that you were talking about, it's being able to listen, I think, would have to be a skill in order to see how you can find your way in to suggest these things. And I would say asking the right questions. Mm. Instead of my walking in and thinking I know the answer and Mm -hmm. thinking I know a better alternative, I would ask, have you ever considered this? Is this an option? Why do we do this versus doing something like that? When I'm mentoring individuals, young managers coming out, one of the things I say to them is, ask the right questions. Don't always think you know the answer. Mm. Listen to the answer and then form your opinion from there on. Mm. And if you ask the question in the right way, they'll embrace the opportunity to do something different versus, as you said, somebody's looking over my shoulder, that's the wrong way to do this. Then you bristle up. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. You were talking about the mentoring program. I know that you had talked at one point over email with me about how much you want to educate the people you're working with. Not as in you telling them what to do, but to give them an opportunity to grow and expand themselves. That's actually the most self-satisfying part of any job. Job satisfaction, in my opinion, are several things. One is having the respect for the individuals that you work with, Mm -hmm. both the guests, the employees, the vendors, 
respect has got to be there. Mm -hmm. But also create a learning environment. I think people are happiest when they're learning. Mm -hmm. They need to have the tools to do the job. That's absolutely essential. But also create an opportunity where they're learning new skills, getting new information, and gaining confidence in their ability. So one of the things we did, we had an empowerment program. And I kept trying to get people to be more comfortable in saying, what can I do for you? And how can I do this? And settling the guest's problem face-to-face at that moment of truth Mm -hmm. versus let me go check with my boss yeah. because it's just a little bit of a letdown. Yeah. I wasn't really successful at first. And I was talking to a consultant one day and they said, you have to put parameters. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, tell them how much they can spend on empowerment. And once they have the guide rules, then they have a little bit more confidence in flexing their empowerment muscles. Ah. So I said, that makes sense. So I said, okay, $1,000, we have $1,000. All of a sudden people started spending, but nobody spent the $1,000. They were spending $30 comping parking, comping a breakfast or something like that. And because it was instantaneous, the letters we were getting back. Now, when I first got to the Seaport Hotel, mm-hmm. are you familiar with TripAdvisor? Yes. We were 79 out of 81 hotels in Boston. Oh, wow. Left healthcare to come back to the Seaport Hotel, come back to the industry. I didn't even know what TripAdvisor was because it was relatively new. Yeah. So I started reading it, finding out what it was. Well, the first thing was in our wanting to be good stewards of the environment, we had power-assist toilets put in the hotel, 450 of them. So we were using less water per flush. Hang on just a second. I want to backtrack just real quick. You said you wanted to be good stewards of the environment. Yes. Now, when I've had conversations with other people, they, they talk about being motivated because it looks good to be good stewards of the environment. And so some of it's lip service and some of it's yes. Yes. actual yes, true. practice. Yep. You folks came up with the idea of being good stewards because at that point, the Boston Harbor was being cleaned up. What else was going on? It was really the chairman, Ned Johnson, okay. chairman of Fidelity. The Seaport Hotel is owned by Fidelity Investments. Okay. Ned set the tone that he wanted it to be a environmentally sustainable environment. He had been that way about all their properties, all their developments. Ned's an extremely interesting individual, and I got to spend a lot of time with him, a lot of quality time, and I very much enjoyed our meetings. But he instituted in the very beginning, they had triple pane glass on all the windows. It was the first non-smoking hotel. Oh, wow. uh, it was, so it was well predated the Boston mandate that you cannot smoke in hotels. Yeah. As new technologies became available, they were immediately implemented. They were fast-tracked from a capital perspective mm-hmm. to take advantage of that new technology that would allow us to save energy, do things more efficiently, okay. save more water. The problem with these power assist toilets was that when you flushed it, it was the sound of the toilet <laughs> on an airplane. <laughs> Guests, that was a welcoming feature. <laughs> absolutely. So it was, if, particularly if it was at night and the guests flush the toilet, for five rooms down, they're all wakened by this. What was oh, that? Oh, The first thing I did was took out 450 toilets. My first big decision. We shipped them to a school in Jamaica that didn't mm-hmm. have enough toilets. And that's another thing. When we were doing any renovation, there was a big research is how do we recycle all the different materials that are going out? And what can we get in for new materials that has some recycled component in it? So that was also driving our processes. The next thing he did was the empowerment. We did some guest services training. And eventually, we got to 17 out of 92 or something. And then within a couple of years, we were number one. We were number one in TripAdvisor for about five years. Oh, my God. And we remain in the top five. Wow. Yeah. Well, all of these different things all kind of play into it. So you're being sustainable, saving you guys money in the long run. Yes. As well as having a harbor to look out the window at. Absolutely. And also improving guest services and uh, guest satisfaction as well. 
And sometimes it's not an easy sell. To whom? To, to the guests. Okay. Our ownership supported it all the time. In one case, we had this gentleman, Matt Moore. Uh, we have bees on our fifth floor. Yep. We've had them there for about 10 years now. Edwin Medrano is an unbelievable beekeeper. Oh, wow. But Matt Moore was the one who said, let's do bees. And he said, let's convert all those little plastic bottles of shampoo, conditioner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, body wash into larger dispensers on the wall. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest. I was a little reluctant. I said, I don't know if the consumer is ready for that. Let's do a floor and trial it and see what people are saying. The difference here and what the motivation was is those little plastic bottles, mm -hmm. there are 300,000 of those generated into the waste stream every year oh by gosh. our hotel. Some people did object. And once we told them why we were doing it and what the difference was, almost all of them embraced it. If they didn't, and we still had a few of the individuals <laughs> that we would deliver to their room and say, I understand you're the individual containers. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. We stayed in a hotel, Norwood, New York, last weekend. They had the three bottles on the wall. Yeah. And I was thinking, well, now I can't steal the shampoo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I was like, well, then again, I also don't have to throw away right. a bottle of shampoo that I'm never going to use. That's cool. What was the biggest challenge in generating this greener experience? There are two really large problems here. And one is you need to start at the source. And I will tell you, it's not only in hospitality, it might be even worse in healthcare. Really? There's no simple packages anymore. It's really very involved. A small little syringe may come with a pound of packaging. A lot of the packaging is plastic mm -hmm. or of a plastic nature, not really compostable. You really need to start at that head end to say, how can we ship product in more environmentally sensitive materials and still have the product delivered in the right shape? Yeah. Second thing is, Where's it all going to go? It's become sources of power in, in some places. We have several different vendors that we work with, with our refuse. We bale cardboard, and that gets sent to our cardboard reprocessing. The cycle of recycling, though, is getting so expensive, mm. it's hard to justify not polluting. <laughs> the cost of polluting, there's not a price tag on that, yeah. yet we're selling our children's future down, down the road the river, here. Yeah. And I keep mentioning to people that whole concentration in the ocean of plastic that's the size of Rhode Island that keeps swirling around in the Pacific Ocean. It's hard for us to comprehend until you see it. Yeah. Uh, or you see pictures of Belize and the beautiful coastline in Belize littered with plastic bottles and, yeah. and six-pack rings and that have been in the ocean for 15 years because they don't have six-pack rings anymore, <laughs> you know? I mean, right. that, that stuff stays forever. So the problem really starts at the very beginning of Starts of at the very the beginning, and process. then also at the end, how do we reprocess this? There's yeah. some great uses of some of this plastic as being regenerated into clothes, yeah. placing asphalt for pavement. That's really exciting. Yeah. I love where technology is going. There's a lot of hope for it. Uh, you are about to leave, or have recently left, the seaport, and you're on to new adventures down in Florida in the same field. Yes. Over the past years that you've been doing this in hospitality, in the hospital healthcare system, and back to hospitality, what gets you up in the morning? It's multifactorial. Every day I realize I'm making a difference. I take little wins, take big <laughs> wins. I enjoy helping people. I enjoy doing things in a new way, differently, more efficiently, with better quality. Those are all things that bring me great satisfaction. If you were to look at TripAdvisor and see the ratings and the comments that guests make about the Seaport Hotel, what you're going to find out or hear about or read about are the personalities. And I've always said that's a hotel with a personality. One of the things I said when I got there is we're not going to script our employees. So some hotels you hear certain phrases, mm -hmm. that will be my pleasure, that will be my pleasure. The third time you hear it, you realize, 
it's, it's maybe not their pleasure. <laughs> and it becomes rote, and it becomes yeah. insincere. So I wanted everybody to be authentic, be sincere, be comfortable with themselves and what they bring to the table. Our turnover rate in the hotel industry is usually around 35 40%. Yeah. At the seaport, it's single digits. It's been that way since the beginning. Wow. Uh, and they say, I feel like I'm working for a family. I feel like I'm working very collaboratively. And that brings me great levels of satisfaction. We have the employee opinion surveys, and they come back very positive, that they're excited about working, that don't want to leave there, and that sort of thing. But also, we talked earlier about the mentoring program. Yeah. There's a gentleman that started as a room service audit taker for me at the Boston and Harbor Hotel. He now is the general manager of a very successful resort in California. Oh, wow. And I can identify probably a half dozen other individuals that came in as line or entry-level management positions who have now gone on to do great things. And I take a great sense of pride in sharing in their accomplishment. <laughs> it's just a very rewarding experience to see somebody do well. Gave them a little nudge to, to get them in a good direction. That's wonderful. In your email, you said respect and dignity for others. That's absolutely a baseline. And I would say that everybody says it. It's easy Uh, to say. It's easy to say. (laughs) I will say that in the hospital environment, for instance, Mm -hmm. I would go up on a floor and I would often ask the nurses, I said, how the room's being cleaned? And they were not very happy. And I would say, well, have you spoken to the housekeeper? Oh, the housekeeper doesn't speak English. Mm. And I'd say, do you know the housekeeper's name? No. I said, well, the housekeeper's worked on this floor for 10 years, speaks English perfectly. This is her name. Can I introduce you? There wasn't this respect. And it was interesting because I asked the head of nursing, if I hit a home run, what would it look like in your mind? And she said, my nurses will never have to mop a floor again. I said, oh, that's easy. And I said, one thing is support me in getting more staff on the floors. But what we ended up doing instead was reoriented the job. So the job was around tasks. Okay. I said to the individuals performing the task, you're not performing tasks. You're taking care of that patient and their non-clinical needs. Mm. And I said, I want you to treat that patient like that's your mother in the bed. All of a sudden, by just reorienting their motivation, their job satisfaction skyrocketed. The hospital cleanliness improved dramatically, and they were happy to come to work, and the turnover just plummeted. At the seaport, John Drew started the organization, Ned Johnson started the organization, demanding that that respect and dignity was there. Ned made a very astute observation when he was traveling to Japan quite often and being service inclusive. Mm-hmm. Some people say, well, you don't pay enough, your employees enough, they're not taking tips. I don't understand how that's valuable. Well, why do we have no turnover? Uh, We do pay them a premium wage. Ned's feeling was that it was more demeaning if they had the handout constantly looking for gratuities. Mm -hmm. It's a more professional approach to say it's a service-inclusive environment. So there are gratuities, but they're added to the bill. It's, It's something that gentleman out in New York, Shake Shack, he's trying to do this where he's saying we're no longer tipping our employees because the servers... I'm making $120,000, and the book is making thirty. You got to align incentives here yeah. a little bit. It's also about changing perspectives, which is something that comes up every episode I've done so far. Is in a lot of ways, a lot of things you have done is instead of turning this into, well, this is the tribe over here that does the floors, and this is the tribe over here that does the nursing, and this is the uh-huh. tribe over here that does this other stuff. You allowed them to align themselves and recognize that they're all participating in the same goal. Yes. That's very important. That alignment of goals, absolutely. And then you have to align incentives. Makes sense. Makes sense. I know that you are taking off very soon for Florida. What's happening down there? 
Well, this is very exciting. Uh, I'd been thinking, what do I want to do next? I've done an awful lot of philanthropic work, and people said, you know, you're really good at that. You should do that. But I hate asking people for money. I was pretty good at it, but I hated doing it. And I thought, well, that's not what I wanted. But I wanted to do something, one last thing that was a little different. Mm -hmm. Jumping from the Boston Harbor Hotel into New England Medical Center was a big change. It was odd. I sat down in my chair, pulled out my cell phone, and it was open to a posting on LinkedIn for the Boca Raton Resort and Club Hmm. in Boca Raton, Florida. And I said, I know that gentleman. And this will be an interesting story. (laughs) I called the next morning, called his assistant, and I said, I'm going to send you my resume. I want you to print it off, and I want you to walk it into your boss. And I want you to say, this is Francis Comedy's father. I said, I know him. But he may not remember me, but he knows my daughter really well. So I'm using my daughter to get a job. <laughs> and, and, and 42 years hospitality experience, and I'm using my daughter. And, oh my um, and he calls me like 15 minutes later. He said, can I get a twofer? Can you bring your daughter? Uh, she said no. Um, <laughs> this property, it'll celebrate its centennial in 2026. Wow. Uh, it was purchased by Michael Dell just a few years ago. So this was already a Forbes five-star property. Wow. He's spending $400 million because he wants it to be one of the top 10 resorts by 2026. First of all, what's wrong with spending somebody else's money? Oh, yeah. No. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, already the quality that is there and thinking they want to take it to another level, it's just very exciting. And I just thought, what a great capstone to a 42-year career. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm excited about it. I'm 68 years old. Oh, wow. And I don't think there's a lot of people that at this age get to start a whole new thing. Yeah. And this is a resort, so it is a little bit different. It's 350,000 acres. It is five hotels, a golf course a huge tennis facility, the Boca Beach Club right on the beach. Then they're building right now a water park. It's phenomenal what they're doing there. Yeah. I'm very excited about the opportunities. And Daniel Hostetler is the president. Daniel built the reputation of Ocean House in Westerly, Rhode Island. Okay, yeah. What I said to him when he said, what made you interested, brought your interest I said, with the quality that you were able to establish in Westerly, Rhode Island, with housekeepers, with desk clerks, Wesley, Rhode Island, I don't think there's anybody there that's ever learned less than a million dollars a year in their <laughs> life. He was able to bring that service mentality, that quality, and all those kind of mundane services that make a hotel a great experience. Yeah. If you can do that there, what can you do at Boca? I said, it'll be great to be part of it. Wow. I can see so many opportunities for you to bring your expertise in and just tweak things a little bit. And well, one of the things he had said to it. me, I have a lot of young managers and I said, well, I have no aspirations for your job. I am not going to be competitive in any sense. I can help mentor many of these junior managers because I'll be like Switzerland. Uh, <laughs> I don't have anything to prove. It's, it's not my loss is your gain and vice versa. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that as well. I see that as being a very rewarding part of this assignment. Would you say that your outlook in terms of your career path, that there's no such thing as a zero-sum game? There is no zero-sum game here. When you're looking to develop managers, bringing people up elevates the entire enterprise. Mm. It improves the experience for the guests. It improves the experience for the employees. It improves the experience for the ownership. If your loss is my game, that's a game I don't want to play. Well said. Wow. What do you wish you knew when you started? I wish I was better at asking questions initially. Hmm. 
I was actually a little bit cocky, even though I was a kid from Dorchester growing up and <laughs> one of eight kids and that sort of thing. Maybe it was because I was one of eight kids. I was a little bit cocky. I was six out of eight. And I worked very hard all the time. I was in a rush. And I sometimes would push too hard initially and hit a wall. What I found was if I asked the right questions, that wall never appeared. Asking the right questions opened people's minds to a different perspective. That, to me, was a road to success that I had limited experience with initially. It caused me frustration. I'd say, I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Why can't they see that this is a better way to do this? (laughs) And it was the approach I had. Mm. So you're about to start your last chapter, your last hurrah. That's the plan. What do you want your legacy to be? I take great satisfaction and a lot of small things and medium things that I think have accumulated to be a substantial uh, philanthropic benefit. Let me just focus on one to Mm -hmm. kind of illustrate. The New England Center and Home for Veterans is a terrific institution at 17 Court Street in downtown Boston. And a friend of mine, Tommy Lyons, used to run that organization. Uh, We used to help out and send linens over there, soaps, things like that. I founded the Boston Wine Expo, and we used to hire some of the clients at the center to do work for us at the expo to Mm. employ them. And then I was president of an organization called the Guild of Anopolis that ran the Boston Wine Expo. We're having a board meeting when Boston Edison was going to shut off the electricity for non-payment of electric bill. Oh, my God. Our treasurer made a motion to send them a check for $10,000 from our treasury. It was unanimously agreed, and we sent them a $10,000 check. At the end of that meeting, he turned to me and he said, do they have an annual fundraiser? And I said, not that I know of. He said, they do now. You and I are going to create it. <laughs> it's now in its 19th year. Oh, my God. We've raised about $7 million for the center. But more importantly than the dollars raised is there's now a much greater awareness of what happens at the center, the kind of work they do, who they do that work for, and how it benefits society as a whole. Wow. Wow. Okay, that's a good legacy. (laughs) Changing the world. Yeah. That's wonderful. My last question is one that I bring up to everybody because of my personal fascination with food. End of the day, I'm not sure when your day ends. You have this boundless energy that I feel like you just go to the end and collapse and then start up again the next day. Pretty much. (laughs) Okay, I was right. What's your comfort food when you're not going to fundraisers or you're not in your layer planning the next set of questions that are going to change the world? Almost any kind of pasta with a bolognese sauce. Ooh, okay. I love Davio's bolognese, rigatoni bolognese. I always loved that. And there was another dish my mother used to do. Pretty simple stuff. It was when there was leftover roast beef and mashed potatoes, and she would grind the roast beef, mix it with the mashed potatoes, and then fry it in little patties mm. with dropped eggs, poached eggs. Oh, my eggs. God. It was, it was fabulous. It wasn't <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> that sounds like a wonderful comfort food. I really appreciate you listening to this episode of Cherry Bomb the Podcast, the companion piece to Sweet Blast, which can be found at theartofmattmckee.com. Today's guest is James Carmody, Boston native and hotelier extraordinaire and changer of the world, I believe. You can find out more about the Seaport Hotel in Boston at www.seaportboston.com and learn more about his new home base at the historic Boca Raton Resort and Club in Florida at thebocaraton.com. Be sure to check out the show notes at theartofmattmckee.com for all the links and subscribe to my newsletter for the updates on the site. You can reach me for questions or comments on Twitter at McKeePhoto, on Instagram at McKee underscore photo, 
or drop me a line at matt at mckeephotography.com. This episode of Cherry Bomb the Podcast could not have been done without the help of Suzanne Schultz and canvasfinearts.com, the specialists in coaching for creatives and editing by Bill Chamlian at Orb Sound. Thanks for listening, and let's start the conversation.